lawyer by day, our guest has a great moonlight job, mystery writer. We're going to unravel it coming up. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back to the Chuck Williams Show. It's becoming a regular Tuesday night thing. Uh, I'm got my third lawyer, fourth lawyer on the show since we've been doing this in the last three months. We got with us today Darren Hicks, but Darren's a little more than a lawyer, as you're going to find out as this conversation unravels. Um, Darren, welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. Great to be here, Chuck. Uh, let's start. I mean, let's just jump in. So, We've had a pretty cool, you got here a little early today, and so you tagged around, and you got to sit in the studio uh, and watch the 6 o'clock show. You got to watch the A block of the 6 o'clock show. So you're somebody who watches news at home and stuff. A little different watching, watching, it, watching it in the studio, wasn't it? Uh, you know, it's, it's stunning watching it. Um, you, you just realize how much talent is up there. And the, all I could think about was watching Phil and everybody just go through this seamlessly. And the skill level involved to do what they did and y'all did is, is just mind-boggling to me. I don't, I don't think people fully appreciate how hard that is to do what y'all do. And the cool part about tonight was we had a dumpster fire, literally a dumpster fire. We were reporting in the A block, and it was like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, you really, I mean, and having only been over here two and a half years, you know, I laugh every time they call me talent. But Phil, Teresa, Bob. They're clearly talent. And these young reporters that we're bringing in now are just, I mean, just so you saw the energy that Carissa D'Agostino yep. brought in. The, I mean, she's a former Syracuse cheerleader, and she brought this just incredible amount of energy into that studio, and it's, it's a really cool place to be. Well, what I want to talk to you about is, let's first of all, let's talk a little bit about how you grew up, sort of how you ended up here. But once we get into the legal part of this and then into the – author part of this and then into the photography part of this you're going to figure out very quickly that darren hicks is a renaissance man one of the few i know um let's start you grew you grew up over in augusta right right in columbia county at evan in evans and your your father was in was an educator right he, he was the high school principal at evans high school that's always tough to be the principal's kid, isn't it? You know, your dad knows your grades before you do, but, you know, on the weekend when you have access to the full basketball court or the full football field or, or the library, I spent a lot of time in the library, which tells you probably a lot about me, but that's not a bad gig to have right there. So you graduated from Evans. Did you play sports when you were yeah, at football. Evans? Football. Football? What position? Center. You're not big enough to be a center man. Listen, you know, 190 pounds, <laughs> quad A football. That was, you know. That's pretty good stuff. So you go to UGA, and did you know you wanted to be a lawyer when you headed off to UGA? I went off to get an art degree. Art degree. Art degree. My parents were thrilled. So what were you going to do with this art? Not, and I'm not talking bad about art degrees to any of the artists out there, but no, what were you going to do with this art degree? Well, the, the original plan was, it, to, the compromise with the parents was I was going to go into medical illustration. So I was going to go on to the Medical College of Georgia, and I was going to draw illustrations for medical journals and stuff like that. And uh, in the start of my sophomore year, I took an anatomy class, and when they rolled out the cadaver, I decided very quickly medical illustration was not in you know, the path I'd be following um, and just went for the straight art degree at that point. 
So art and cadaver, that's a totally different world. Yeah. I mean, and so at that point, how did you say, okay, I'm going to turn an art degree into applying for law school? You know, you, you get to your senior year and you go, okay, what are you going to do with your life? And, you know, my, my dad had said, you know, whatever you do, don't be a lawyer. I've got too many friends who are lawyers and they all seem miserable. And, you know, so there was a lot of pressure not to be a lawyer. But I wanted something very different from art. Um, art was my passion, but I, I, I didn't want to take my passion and try to pigeonhole it into a career. And so I, I said, let's try law school and loved law school. Loved it. So a lot of people that graduate undergraduate at Georgia end up at UGA Law. Right. You did. No. Why? You know, uh, probably some grades. I had decent grades, but not the great grades. And UGA was certainly on the coming up as a law school. Um, but, you know, I think in the end, going over to Mercer Law School was probably the best for me. I mean, Athens is a great place to be, but I'm not sure I, I would have done what I did in law school if I had still been in Athens. And so it, Mercer and Macon were perfect for me for law school. So you get, you are one of those lawyers, and it's really interesting to me because you're one of those lawyers. The law is a big umbrella. There's a lot of things under a, that you can do with a law right. degree, not just try cases or do wills or, you know, or become a judge. I mean, there's a lot of different things. Um, you kind of have explored a lot of those in your career, right? Yep. I've gone through a variety of different manifestations of what it can mean to be a lawyer. You ended up over here, right? Ended up over here. And I, your I, wife, Angela, was she in Mercer Law with we, you? We graduated from law school together, and I, I spent two years clerking for a federal judge over in Macon. And, um, you know, that we had not gotten married yet, and she already had a job over here. Um, working for Ron Mullins and Ron Self and Pete Robinson and them. And uh, they hired me. And so I came over here, and we both ended up at Page Scranum. Which is one of the more established, probably the most established. I mean, mm-hmm. that and Hatcher Stubbs were the two established That's Columbus right. law firms. That's right. Hatcher Stubbs has since dissolved. So Page Scranum, is, is Angela still with them? She's still there. You're not. I'm not. <laughs> you you went a lot of different directions with your degree. Right. Is When you left Page Scranum, what did you go do? Well, I had when I was at Page Scranum, I was primarily a litigator. So I spent a good bit of time in the courtroom um, and had developed some expertise in a you know, kind of a niche area of law dealing with what were called impact fees in Georgia that nobody in their right mind should know a lot about. And I ended up knowing a lot about it. And had a client uh, that I represented, the Home Builders Association in Georgia. And they asked me to come in-house and be their in-house counsel. Now, the timing on this is perfect, Chuck. It's 2007, and I go to work for the Home Builders Association of Georgia. 2008's coming. 2008, baby, that thing goes like this. So we go from, you know, this incredible number of members, and the, and the world, the, it just, everything dropped. And... You know, I had spent years working with the members when I was outside at Page Granham. I mean, my my wife, You're right, had, right, was Kathy was with the Home Builders Association of Columbus, and you did a lot of work with them on that right. fees, right? Right, and it it was heartbreaking. I mean, you know, you, you look back on a period and you realize how difficult it was, but how much growth was there because of 
there was nothing easy. And I was there for three years, and there was nothing easy in that three-year period, but built a lot of great relationships, a lot of good friends that I have to this day, you know, fighting for them. And th- that was a, it was a great, you know, you look back and go, how could you have gone into the home building, right? At the, you know, but you feel like, okay, maybe that's where I should have been at that point. And home builders are a really special breed. And I say that because they're gamblers. I mean, they they, ga- they gamble on everything from the weather to commodity prices, you know, and I've known a lot of them over the years, married to one. And they, they, they have a sense about them that they, they take risk in ways that some of the rest of us may not. Right. And they, they were all, when you say all in, I mean, it's everything's on the table when they're building. I mean, their whole life financially is there. And so when this thing collapsed, I had friends who lost everything, lost homes, lost cars, lost everything. And, um, it, you know, it was, a, it was a struggle coming out of that. Because, I mean, I've been on trips, and they work hard and they play hard. Mm-hmm. They do. They, they, they're, 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 they're a rare, rare breed. I mean, did you like working with the home builders? I loved working for the home builders. Loved it. I traveled around the state constantly, got to meet, you know, home builders in North Georgia, South Georgia, Central Georgia, all over the place. Great friends all over the place. Um, loved it because you could see the economic impact in the communities where they were. Um, and, and it's something about working with folks who build something, who, who produce a tangible product where you can go see it. And, you know, the smell of a new home going up is great. And um, I, I loved it. But, you know, it, it just the collapse of the industry basically forced me to take another job at some point after that. And where'd you go? Well, uh, went briefly back into private practice and then got a call from uh, governor deal had just been elected and, uh, got a call about, uh, interviewing for a position and ended up getting appointed uh, inspector general for the state of Georgia. What does the inspector general of the state of Georgia do? Well, inspector generals are kind of in-house, Like all the federal agencies have their own inspector general. They conduct investigations of the agencies, and I did it for the state of Georgia, investigating fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption within the executive branch agencies. So I had a small team of deputies that work with me, and we take in complaints and conduct the investigations. What did you learn about governmental waste and stuff? I mean, as you were doing that, that had to be a fascinating job. I mean, and I've done some investigations back in my newspaper days where I was looking at governmental waste and, or governmental issues. I mean, that had to be a really, really interesting but tough job. It, it is, and we were there at a, a interesting time, too, because it was after some of the initial stimulus had come out from the 2008. And I don't know if you recall, but there was a point in time at which, you know, everything was supposed to be shovel-ready. And at one point, the word came down from the federal government, spend the money. And so when you tell people just to spend the money, things kind of get just pushed out sort of willy-nilly. And so, and, and also we got there right in the middle of the Atlanta uh, public school scandal. So two of my deputies were assigned to do, be part of that investigation. So it was an interesting time. Yeah, they, I mean, there was a, there was a lot being investigated. During that. Yeah. I mean, you did that, what, for three, four years? I did it for three years, and they gave me a badge, Chuck, which mm-hmm. is very cool. <laughs> you still have it? Yeah. Well, I don't have the badge. They they have to take back your official badge, so they give you an honorary badge. They give you a, you didn't like you weren't like Barney. You didn't get a bullet. Did you? No, no, they would not give me a gun. Which is <laughs> Just good, a badge. Good sense. So, from there, you go into corporate law, right? Yeah, I, I had spent six years basically commuting from where I live in Warm Springs up to Atlanta, and I mean that's just a 
it's some wear and tear right there on you. And uh, kids were getting to the point where I had a daughter in high school, you know, or starting getting ready to go into high school. And I just wanted to be back here and be here locally. And, you know, a good friend of mine was general counsel over at TSIS and talked to him and ended up going in-house. And you've been with TSIS since? Since, yeah, 2013 now. Just in so you were with TSIS through the acquisition by Global Payments, and I don't want to get very deep into all that, but TSIS is a very important piece of the Columbus puzzle that we and you know, and you've kind of seen that, haven't mm-hmm. you? I mean, yep. you've seen the international scope of that company, right. right? That what? But you've also seen COVID there. Have you, are you back at the office or are you still working from home? I, I'm, I'm back in the office. Um, you know, that's not across the board, um, which I think it is for most companies, is some people are going in, some people aren't. Um, and, and, you know, I think COVID has been an interesting experience. And, um, you know, I, I think just talking among my colleagues doing what I do, I think that across the board in, all, in a lot of industries, this has accelerated you know, it, it's really, it's one of those events that fundamentally changes something very quickly, how we work. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't have told you what Zoom was a year ago. And now, you know, all your meetings conducted to Zoom or one of the other platforms. And you know that that's going to be an established part of what we do going forward. I mean, it's just the convenience of it. And um, I think just, I think it changes how we work is what COVID has done. And I think there's going to be a very, I think it's one of those events, you know, if you have parents that grew up during the Great Depression, there are things, behavioral changes that came about through that that carried with them the rest of their lives. And, and I think this is one of those events for, for our generation. So you think you, you've got two, y'all got two children, they're both in college, right? One is a graduated from college and one is had went through his first year. So they're going to carry that with them. I mean, have you seen the, the impact of COVID on your kids? Well, you, got, you know, so my son was a senior when it hit. And he played football, but his real love was track. And they canceled track season the day before his first track meet. This was years of working to get ready for that. He didn't get to go to prom. He they did a graduation, but it wasn't a real graduation ceremony. Now, he's been very resilient. But I just, your, your heart breaks for that. You know, I mean, thank- you're the you're the son of an educator. You know the importance of those, the importance of those educational milestones. Yeah. Well, and and in those, and and you know, from a, from a sports standpoint, I mean, sports is not just a game. It, it it's it's it defines who you are, your character, and the culmination of hard work and effort put into that, and to to see that getting taken away from him. Now, my my daughter was a senior at Mercer at the same time. She had just been awarded Phi Beta Kappa, had gotten a Fulbright grant to go to Mongolia for a year. And, you know, summa cum laude graduate, no graduation. Her, full, her Fulbright got canceled and basically couldn't do her um, Phi Beta Kappa in person. You know, you, you want to be there at graduation when they put all that on you, and yeah. she didn't get to do it. So, you know, in those are real things that 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 you know and I, I hesitant I hesitate to say scars but they're life experiences that you know it's like well I got gypped out of that I got right. I got cheated a little bit and you know 
you did something during COVID of all of my Facebook friends. You did something that was probably the most fun of anything I had in COVID. If you could have fun, you started when the NCAA tournament got canceled and everything. You started social media. You vote tournaments and tell me of all these crazy things: best TV show, best song. I think best Christmas song was one of them. I mean, what were you thinking? Because you had dozens of friends that got up every day and would cast their vote before they went to bed. I was one of them. And what were you trying to do there? You know, it was, I think, when we started it, so it would have been March, so we probably were about a month or so into the full-blown isolation at home. And, I mean, as I think most of us felt at that point, especially living where I live in Warm Springs, you were just isolated from people. I mean, you just you just you'd go to the grocery store when you had to go to the grocery store, come in, get out very quickly. You go to the grocery store in Manchester. Yeah, but you you you, you didn't see anybody, you didn't interact with anybody, and I was wanting some platform to to find a way to interact, and I just I started with you know I let my Facebook friends choose my favorite movie, so I gave them sixty four you know movies, and we did a full blown March Madness brackets and everything, and and they were able to vote you know, matchup by matchup on what would be my favorite movie from now on. And um, and you saw it. I mean, people would be arguing back and forth with one another and snipping at one another, and um, and it was great because as soon as we finished the first one, immediately people were saying, all right, what's next? What was the favorite movie? The favorite movie was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and the funny thing was it, it won, and the very next week, I think it was CBS started their movie of the week again. On WRBL. And the very first movie was? Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I remember that. I remember going, wow, they we nailed that one because we did. CBS started in WRBO. It was, it was literally the next week. Yep. And then you did TV shows and Andy WRBO Gr- won again. Andy Griffith Show. Um, yeah, I mean, the Andy Griffith Show beat MASH for the best mm-hmm. TV show. You, know, What were you learning about people? I've got a lot of old friends. Um, is, is one of the things I learned. Um, but it was, um, it was, I think that a lot of people were craving the engagement. Um, it, it just, it, it was, it was really just, it was fun to see, to have something to think about. Cause I mean, you remember, we didn't know anything about COVID at that point. I mean, we didn't know how, you know, we were told at one point, 14 days and we're good to go. And I remember we were told that, and my son was all excited. Well, maybe we'll get back to track. And it became very clear we weren't getting back to track. And I, I was just looking for anything fun and positive that you could do from home that was just different than what you normally do. What was your favorite? You probably did a dozen of those different tournaments. You know, I, I like the, 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 the one-hit wonder tournament. was the, Talking about songs. Yeah, now. talking about songs, one-hit wonder. And I liked that, and I liked the ones when we started doing music because we could put together the playlists. Yeah, and so you could get your playlist, and you could just put it in the car and go. And there wasn't a bad song on it. Well, there were there were a few bad. We put in the the play, and you know, like um, you know, something from Vanilla Ice. We'd put in there just so you had to vote on. But listen, you know, that's everybody's guilty pleasure, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> absolutely. So, but that it was just fun, and I think we all needed a little bit of that. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed them, and I they they really did. They were something that I really really looked forward to regular basis so you're kind of crawling out of covid now but what i really want to talk about is 
what has become a business for you. And it's, you're an author and, yeah. uh, tell me, a, I tell you what, okay, I'm going to read this and the, this is your books are published by who now? Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, uh, books for children. They just got bought by Harper Collins. So, so you're a Harper Collins. I suppose so. Arthur. Now. Yeah. You know, you've been doing it for how long? Uh, I, I, my first book came out in 2012. Okay. The titles are fascinating. The Van Gogh Deception, the Rembrandt Conspiracy. But I'm reading the one, Van Gogh Deception, and that was 2017. Am I yeah. right on that? Okay. This book was reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, and it says readers will relish every surprise turnabout. How did, how did you get into art degree, lawyer, and now all of a sudden you're writing Middle school murder, I mean, middle school murder mysteries, not murder mysteries, uh, but mysteries. You know, I, I had no, no expectations of ever being a writer. I mean, you know, when you're a lawyer, you write every single day. So the, the last thing I thought I'd want to do is, is come home and write on top of that, you know. And I, it was back probably 2009, 2010, I had read a book by Bill Bryson, and which who I love as an author. And I have this tendency to, to do these thematic reads of multiple, you know, so I'll find something I want to read about, and I'll read five books about that subject. And, and I'd gotten on Shakespeare at the time. And I had read this book, and there was just this one fact in the book that I, I seized on, and I thought, man, just this thought was, wouldn't that make a great ending to a story? And I literally just went down and just wrote a final chapter. And apparently I write it like an eighth-grade level. And everything, <laughs> but I, I was thinking of like a story for my daughter, okay. right? So it had been a, a story for my daughter, and I just sat there and I, and, and I wasn't even thinking, okay, let's do this and get published. But I said, let me write this book for my daughter. And seventy thousand words later, I had this manuscript, and I, I took it to her and I said, you know, I want you to read it. And you know, my daughter, and my wife, the one thing that they are, are very honest with you about something. If they don't like something, they'll tell you. And my daughter said, I like it. And then my wife read it. I like it, you know, subject to all these comments I've written in the margins for you. And uh, I said, so what do I do with this now? And, uh, I, I, you know, I did a little bit of research, figured out I had to have a literary agent. Um, I went and bought a book at Barnes & Noble and literary agents. I didn't even know middle grade fiction was a thing. I mean, you know, we grew up in a time where you went to junior high school and high school. And, you but, went, you know, so I didn't even know what it was. But the... Um what, God, I'm just, I just want brain dead. The ones that we read, the um, Hardy Boys, Hardy Boys, and then um, uh, the Hardy Boys, and there's one other, and I can't remember. Them. But you kind of went from Hardy Boys, and then maybe you read the classics of like Treasure Island, yeah. And then it was very quickly, I was reading Stephen King, yeah. So there really wasn't this kind of, you know, now you have middle grade fiction and you have young adult fiction, and that didn't exist. I mean, yeah. we, we didn't know those yeah. genres. But I managed to pick up enough to figure out this is where I think I am and uh, sent it off to five agent, literary agents and, you know, one rejection, two rejection, three rejection, four rejection. I'm kind of going, okay, this, is, this isn't this is going to work out, but I gave it a try. And then I get a call from this guy from New York City, you know, you know Stephen Chudney and, you know, literary agent, and, you know, can you send me your whole manuscript because you only send, like, excerpts for these things. And I said, you know, and immediately I ran and printed that thing off as fast as I could and I had it in the mail overnight to him. And like two or three days later, he called and said, I want to represent you. And so I had an agent. And, and all of this. Was is he intrigued by the lawyer background? I mean, if you look, lawyers 
Grisham. I mean, lawyers make good writers. I, I think that's intriguing from the standpoint of you know that the basics are there, right? I mean, you know how to write a sentence. You, you, you can, you, our job as lawyers is to communicate. Not logically think. Right. What he liked was all of my books have this kind of historical fiction component to it. And I think he was just looking for something different than kind of everything then was vampires and wizards. And he was looking for something more grounded. And um, he shopped it out to five of the big publishing houses. He said, you know, okay, if we get five more, if we don't get these five, we'll get another five. And one rejection, two rejection, three rejection, four rejection. And then he calls me. And he says, Houghton Mifflin wants to offer you a contract, but not for one book, for two books. Did you say, I don't have a second book? And I said, but I said, well, no, you know, I'll get that book together. But, you know, at that point, I'd been telling myself, you know, it's not going to work out, work out. And I remember saying, okay, great, we'll get it all together and everything and shutting my office door and just, you know, I mean, it just hits you at that point, right? I mean, because you keep telling yourself it's not going to happen, don't get your hopes up. And then when it happens, you just kind of get, it feels like you get hit in the head with a baseball bat and you, you know, just the emotions just are incredible. And you just caught the car. I yeah, mean, you, you yeah, mean, I did. I'm going, that, what does this mean? <laughs> you yeah, know? And this was what, 2011? This is probably 2010, 2011. And th- th- this is the craziest thing about that first book. It was called Secrets of Shakespeare's Grave. And I told you I grew up reading Stephen King. He was, he was my author growing up. Stephen King was the dude. Every Christmas you got the brand new thick Stephen King novel. And they, they decide who's going to be your illustrator. And they told me, we've got this guy named Mark Edward Geyer um, who is going to illustrate your books. Okay, great. And I, so I immediately started looking up where Mark Edward Geyer, where he had, he's illustrated like four Stephen King novels. <laughs> so, and Anne and Rice and Stephen King. So all of a sudden, I've got a guy illustrating my book who's illustrated Stephen King's books. And just, just you crazy. Saying, I live in Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, crazy. I mean... What was that like? I mean, that had to be just when you started putting the pieces together. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, that's that's the only way I can describe it. I mean, it's, um, I love, the best part is going to the book festivals, going to, to, uh, to just meet people. I mean, those are the best. I mean, it just, it has been a very fulfilling 10 years doing this. So, how did Shakespeare, uh, Secrets of Shakespeare's Grave do? How did it do in its initial? It, it, it did okay um, and got good good reviews, and, and the sequel to it did okay. And then I wrote The Van Gogh Deception, and it just, it, it, it was sort of crazy. I mean, it, the Wall Street Journal reviewed it, and then it got picked up on best book award lists in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, Connecticut, Maine, Illinois, and you know, you once you get those teachers reading it, and they get the students reading it, it's out there. So your book ended up becoming required reading in cl- for schools, right? Yeah, you know, and, and they'll do it where they give you a, a range of books to yeah. read, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and everything. And um, so, yeah, it was on those lists where you could choose what to read, and so. Um, so you're getting people ready for grapes of wrath. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but you know it's 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 funny because I, I I never feel like I write down to the kids. Yeah. You know I feel like I said I'm writing as if I was wanting the audience for this stuff. And so, um, the, the books have the vocabulary is not watered down in the least. Um, and and I one of the reasons I started with Shakespeare and I've gone to all these art concept concepts is 
there's just so much great stuff in the world that you just want people to know about. And I tell people writing is a very, very selfish endeavor because I'm getting to, to share with you what I think is important and what I like and take you to places where I like to go. And you got to sit there and read it. Yeah. I mean, that that's true. And, and from my experience in 35 plus years of newspaper writing, writing is also something that requires inc- incredible discipline. Particularly, you know, the discipline for a newspaper writer is a deadline. Right. You know, if you get a deadline, your deadline could be three months off. So you can't just write everything in the last two weeks. Right. I mean, the, the discipline, you, when do you write? Are you a morning or, or an evening writer? It, it's an evening endeavor. I mean, and I, I tell when I, I, I usually try to write about 30 minutes to an hour a night. And I tell people when I speak to them about the writing process for me, I mean, if it was my wife doing the writing, she could sit down and do six hours at a block. You know, she just she's just like that. I can't. So I, I focus on trying to get 30 minutes to an hour a night in. And that can be just writing. It can be editing. It can be revising. It can be research. Um, Commitment. It's 30 minutes right, to an but hour. It, but it's every night. It's, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's every night is what you have to do. And do you do it in a family room? You do it in a room by yourself? I've, I've got a little library, and I go sit in there with my laptop and just, you know, work through what i got to work through that night. Is writing easy or hard for you? Writing, the, the, the structure and the task of writing isn't hard in terms of, I think, law school, and I was, I was a managing editor of the Law Review, so that's just a day-in and day-out grind of editing, editing, editing. So you, you get a good feel for the basics of, of the writing process. I, I, the real part is just, it's the plot, the characterization. The, you know, you, you always want to try to write your characters into a corner and let them tell you how they're going to get out of it. And so... It can be frustrating. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't say it's hard. It can be frustrating, um, in a, in a good way, um, because you, you all of a sudden have that break breakthrough on what's going to happen. And because I, I I have a general plot in mind, I know where I'm going to start, where I'm going to finish, and I know points along the way that I want to go. But but very, what very quickly happens with these books is the characters sort of take over and take a life of their own, and you're you're not really telling them what to do. They start to tell you what to do, which sounds corny and all that, but they do. See, I've never written fiction, you know, which is a good thing since I work for newspapers. Uh, but, you know, in writing fiction, I don't know if I could do it. I mean, you know, I always, when I had writer's block, I had an editor tell me this many years ago. It's usually not writer's block. It's a reporter's block. You right. don't have enough information. And I'm not sure doing what you do that, I could do that. But, you know, you have such a well of, of sort of experience to draw on that, I mean, I, I think what you do would translate very well to a, to a fiction environment in terms of, I mean, you've, the people you've met, the experiences that you've seen, the, the, the human emotions, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, that, that's all you're bringing to the story, you know, to the story is all of that. Um, and you start tapping into these things and, you know, I tell people, you, you know, if you see yourself in one of my books, you know, it might not be a coincidence. It may be you I was thinking about or a specific 
set of circumstances. That happens. You, have you have your kids and your wife ended up in your book? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so the, my second book was called Tower of the Five Orders. Uh, my daughter and I had gone over to uh, Oxford to, to do some research, and she was, she was young at the time. We went over there, and we had this uh, one trip to one of the colleges at Oxford where we were taken on a tour to see the, the only known portrait of Christopher Marlowe. And so you, I've got my daughter, and she's in the middle of the whole Harry Potter thing and everything. And you walk into one of these colleges, and you go into this courtyard, and it's just, and she's going, I'm in Hogwarts, Dad. You know, and then they go, this is the new court. New court's only 500 years old. New court. And her eyes are just wide open. And then we walk through this gateway, and they go, this is old court. It's 700 years old. And, okay, so I'm going, where are we going to see this portrait of this Christopher Marlowe, this famous playwright? And, and so we go into this, to the dining hall, and it's just like the movies. In Hog, you know, it's just like Harry Potter movies, and my daughter's eyes are just huge. I mean, it's got the linens on the tables, and the headmaster table is up there and everything. And she is just like, I can't believe my dad got me into this place. And we're wondering, where is this portrait? Because there's these massive portraits all over the wall. And they take us through the back of there. We go by the kitchen, and we come to this little small room. And it's kind of messy. It's got, you've seen it. It's got chairs and the newspapers fold up and magazines and everything. And there's this portrait of Christopher Marlowe on the wall. And I go, well, what is this magnificent room? It's the teacher's lounge. They had the only known portrait of Christopher Marlowe in the teacher's lounge. But that's, Eng I mean, that's, that's England, right? And that, what I just told you, became an entire chapter in the book. Almost verbatim. I went, I went back to our hotel that night, and I just wrote down everything we did, everything we saw, every step we took, her every observation, and it became a chapter in the book. It's preserved there forever. How do they feel about that? You know, I, I, th I think my son's a little more uh, whatever, Dad, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Um, he's always very supportive. I, th I think my daughter likes it. Um, and she's traveled with me a lot to to, to book festivals and on, on some of these fact-finding endeavors, um, and which has always been very helpful because you see it from her eyes and through her perspective. And you had part of your target audience in your own house. Right, absolutely. That, that had to have helped. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What did the Wall Street Journal review of the Van Gogh deception do to your celebrity as an author? You know, it's weird because it's such a little niche kind of, you know, when you say celebrity, I mean, you you can go into some schools and all the kids will know you, you know, but, but nobody, I mean, I bet you, I bet you most of the people I work with have no idea to write books. This is not on the reading list at TSIS? I, I You know, because I just, I don't talk about it a lot in that environment. And so um, I just, you know, and I bet, I bet nobody in Manchester knows I write books. Or Warm Springs, you know, maybe just some family folks and everything. Um, and so, but it's crazy because, you know, I was up in Canada because sometimes I go up and work in Canada and um, I was in Ottawa and um, went to this bookstore in Ottawa and they had my book in there. You know, how crazy. And now, it, now I've got the Van Gogh deception is now in uh, Poland. It's in Polish and it's in Turkey. And I just got the Netherlands. And so that, I mean, you know, and I guess 
I know you, so I'm not as amazed by that. But, you know, it's almost like a secret life for you. Very much so, yeah. I mean, you just you write these cool stories and push them out. There have been a couple of things. You were telling me before we started something about that you you Googled your name or Googled the books, and you came up with something interesting out of California. Yeah, I had, um, you know, you, you periodically just check to see, is there a new review or something like that? And I've learned to quit looking for reviews. <laughs> That's just, there's nothing good happens looking for reviews. But I had, um, it was weird, it'd come up and it was a, a document I had not recognized. And it was just a chapter from my first book, Secrets of Shakespeare's Grave. And I start looking through and it, someone, and the state had apparently put together in California, put together this preparation document for uh, standardized testing. And one of those was, you know, reading and it was a chapter for my book. You know, and it was a comp- reading comprehension yeah, question. Yeah, and I'm just going, well, how crazy is that? You know? I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing you don't really realize how stuff can just mushroom. Yeah, and, you know, you sold how many copies? Yeah, probably somewhere in the range of seventy to seventy-five thousand copies of that. Now, listen, you understand, like. Some of the some of these children's authors they'll sell a million the first day. Yeah. So you know this is fine accomplishment, but it you know pales in comparison to a lot of these folks. But this is a long way from the people who self publish as well. I mean, you know, you have people say I'm going to write a book, and then they write the book and self publish. I mean, this is this is this is real work. It, it is, and I and I would never you know listen. I think people who self publish take are just listen give them all the credit in the world. I could never put in the time, energy, and effort that they have to put in. I mean, to do to their own editing, to do everything that I've got a company behind me that does. You know, and I get an email saying stuff is done. But um, but it's all... Same, also- same liter- literary agent? Yeah. So y'all have kind of built this this bond, I guess, now. Yeah, yeah. He's, we've been together for about uh, 11 or 12 years now. Does he throw ideas at you, or does he... Or does he more cultivate what comes out of your head? It more of that. He'll he'll kind of he's a good sounding board of ah, that doesn't sound like something good or that that does is is what he he does a lot more of that. What's the worst review you ever got? Oh, I mean, you you don't. It's you know none of the the there's so there's the major review organizations like Booklist and. Um, other ones, and I've never gotten a bad review from one of the, the you know, there's like five or six major review organizations, and they've all been good. But reviews. like Rotten Tomatoes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, so if you go to Goodreads or something like that, yeah. or you start looking at the comments on Amazon, you, you can get some people who can be mean-spirited. But listen, it's they want to say it. They want to say it. Um, you know, I, I think the one that gets me the most is the, 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 the folks that say, well, I don't think a 12-year-old could do this. I'm going, well, at what point did you realize this was fiction, you know? <laughs> and, and, and listen, I'm going, okay, it's not like a 35-year-old could do most of what's in here, right? I mean, it's a story. In this world, and I heard it today, and I think Secretary, I heard, I was at Law Day today, and Secretary Raffensperger, Brad Raffensperger, was speaking on the rule of law, and he t- used a phrase and it, it kind of comes off what you just said. He said, we've gotten to a point where social media has become antisocial. 
Yeah, it has. And that I thought that was an interesting way to put it. I mean, obviously, here's a guy who has taken his fair share and everybody else's of criticism for doing his job. Right. You know, it's interesting. But, you know, when you talk about reviews, people come at you just – they'd say stuff online they'd never say say in your face. Absolutely. And and listen, again, you know, you got to learn to take it with a grain of salt and and things like that. But it is is something that you just sort of learn to have to ignore, I think – I mean, listen, you know, you and I grew up in a generation where the worst thing a person said in the South was, bless your heart, yep. right? I mean, that's it. You know, and that, that was, ooh, you know. And, um, yeah, so it's it can be, if you if you get too far down that rabbit hole looking at that stuff, it can wear on you, so you don't. What about um, kind of oh, just sitting here thinking, um, six books, What's your next one? So the one that's coming out in October is called The Crown Heist. And so it's the third book in The, the Lost Art Mysteries. And um, same two characters, Art and Camille, and they head off to England. And uh, basically culminates at Westminster Abbey, at uh, on the roof of Westminster Abbey. And so... You have to be well-read and well-schooled to do this, or you've got an unbelievable Google machine. Is it a little bit of all of that? A little bit of, I mean, I read a lot. I mean, I read just a lot of nonfiction, just a ton of nonfiction. And um, and that's where a lot of the ideas come from. And, um, yeah, I just always have, you know, four or five books going anyway at any time. Okay, so we've established the fact that you're a lawyer. <laughs> We're getting ready to go into the pictures, Dylan. Dylan Hansen's our uh, director here tonight, and Dylan's Dylan's going to uh, um, be putting some images up on the screen. Um, so, lawyer, author, you're also a really good sports photographer, um, and I guess that's the art side of it. But as I spent the first half of my career as a sports a newspaper sports guy, sports editor, and I have this thing for sports photography. I mean, and really good photographers. Mike Haskey at the Ledger's right. top notch. Robin Tamarkey was a great sports photographer. You know, I love it, but your work, you don't really work for anybody. You just shoot Brookstone athletic events, and you started doing it for your kids, right? Yeah. Started my daughter was in middle school. What do we got up there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's a Brookstone football, but – those photos, and you know, if you look at that, here we're looking at a Brookstone football photo, running back, block, you know, we got to got got it going. But you know, that's a good sports picture that could have ended up on the front page of the Ledger Inquirer on a Friday, on a Saturday morning. Um, I mean, I would have picked that and put it up. I mean, so where'd you find the time to start shooting sports sports pictures? Well, you know, one of the reasons in our both of my children went through Brookstone. Yeah. And one of the reasons that they went through Brookstone is because we were working here in Columbus and commuting from Warm Springs, and I, we, both my wife and I wanted to be able to be at their events. Right? I mean, yeah. that was important. And, um, and so when my daughter started playing middle school basketball and um, softball, you know, listen, sitting in the stands is fine, but I grew up, my dad as a principal, and he was a coach before that, when you're 
you grow up on the sidelines, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not in the stands watching. You're on the sidelines. I hate watching games. I mean, as a former sports editor and high school sports reporter, I hate watching games from the stands. I want to stand, stand down. I want to stand in there and watch them on the sidelines. And so this was my way very early on to excuse myself from the stands. <laughs> and I could get a camera and go out there and start taking pictures. And, um, and, it, and it started with just my children. And then, you know, and, and then I would take pictures of the other players. And they're just so appreciative of it. And the parents are so appreciative of it. And you have deadlines. I mean, your stuff goes on Facebook, and you've got a slideshow. And <laughs> the reason I kind of got hooked into it, I've had two very good friends, uh, Seth Brown and Rick Lingo. Mm-hmm. Their kids have played football and basketball and baseball and everything and track yep. at Brookstone. And, you know, I would go after a football game or a track meet to see – or a basketball game to see if you had any pictures of, of you know – of Trey or Drew or uh, Wesley. Or, or Wesley, yeah, I'd go look for that stuff, and I would notice that the parents were looking for it as you sort of lost a lot of that sports photography in the newspaper. You kind of replaced it, at least for your school. Well, you know, and it's it's funny because you know, like when I played high school football, you know, number one, you're center, so you never nobody's ever taken a picture of the center. Right. Nobody cares about and what Wesley was a center. Right? right. And, you know, so if, you know, the only pictures you got taken were by the yearbook folks. And, you know, they're always going to be focused on the back in the 80s on the running back or the quarterback. And we had a very good quarterback that went off to Clemson. So you, I've got like two pictures of me playing, you know, two pictures where I just happened to be near the quarterback. Right. <laughs> and everything. And, and so what I want to do once I started doing this was to make sure that I got pictures of everybody. And so you'll, you'll notice that when I do it, it's, Everybody gets a picture. If you're on the field, I try to get your picture. And Let's put up some more yeah. of those, Dylan, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah, there's – I mean, what's that picture? Okay, there's a picture. looks like a practice. It looks like a kid's consoling a kid. Can What, what was going on there? Well, it was uh, – they're doing their summer uh, workouts. And um, so what was going on is um, they were just doing the drills where they were doing the, the sprints. And um, I think that is actually Dan Amos there. And uh, – he, um, you know, again, you know, they, they try to make you stand up, right? You know, when you finish with your sprints, you're supposed to stand up, not supposed to bend over. And he was just sitting there helping out. And I just thought, you know, what a great picture. And then that's right at the start of a game. I mean, as you know, I mean, capturing the emotion is much more important than just the, the physical act. I mean, when you can get that emotion, to me, that's what I'm looking for. And the great and thing. And that's hard to do in a still photograph. Yeah, it is. This one's really good. And so, you know, that one's just, you know, <laughs> you got a good camera and you can get located on the track and just straight down the line on that. Um, I bet swimming is fun to shoot. It is a challenge to shoot swimming because there's only so many angles you can get to on a swim, you know, swimming. Um, and so, um, but it's, it's, they're all great. Now, see, I like, like, I like that picture right there. So it's a, it's a, it's a young swimmer. Clearly, it looks like she's either starting or finishing a race. Right. And she's, she's at the, she's at the wall, isolated. You know, you, you see something in her face, and that's that, what that light was just coming on. It's got a great contrast in the colors, and you know, and the, the great thing is the, 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 the number one at Brookstone has been so, because I my my son's been out of there for a year now. Yeah, and so I continue to take the pictures, but Brookstone has been so welcoming to allow me to just 
go into the dugouts, be on the sideline. And, and the students are so used to just seeing me that they, they're they unguarded. You become part of the furniture. Right. And th- I love the unguarded moments, and you capture them. And um, You know, that's one of the advantages of what I'm doing right now. Uh, reporting here is I use a cell phone. I don't use the big camera that a lot of my colleagues use and other TV stations. I'm doing most of my stuff with a cell phone. People are a lot less, I'm noticed less with it. And you can just pick up better stuff and get good images. And I think you've got that advantage having been there for so long. They just, they're, they're comfortable around you. Right. And, and listen, I mean, the, the opportunity to take pictures of my children through the years too, and to capture those moments is just, you know, and, and, I, and so you kind of act as a little bit of a proxy for the other parents as well of they can enjoy the game and then, and you're, but you're right. I mean, I'll get home from, I'd get home from a game on a Friday night and you start downloading, you know, you're downloading 700 pictures to pick 50, right? And, you know, it's 2 in the morning, and you post the pictures, and as soon as you post them, you got parents like, 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 like. <laughs> yeah, because you're giving them, you know, I know that feeling because as soon, I mean, I would go by Golden's Donuts after a Friday night football putting out the Friday night paper at the Ledger back in the early 90s or the Montgomery Advertiser in the late 80s. I'd go to Donut Shop or whatever, and I'd go in there, and I, sure enough, there'd be somebody that had already gotten a copy of that. And, you know, it could have been a high school official or whatever, but somebody had already gotten a copy. They'd gone down to the to Front Avenue and waited for it to come out of the load right. dock because they want to see that. There's something... You, you've hit on something. There's something intrinsic about local sports and people wanting to see their kids' names and their kids' pictures. Am I right? Oh, it is. And I, I think you capture moments. So, I mean, you know, when you're up in the stands, you can't see what's really happening on the field. The, the, the You know, it, it's, a, it's a good and bad, but, you know, those end-of-the-season moments when, yeah. you, when a kid realizes who's a senior, this is it, right? Yeah. It's over. And you get that look in the eye and you go, because you've been there, right? Yeah. You've, you felt that moment and you, you want to capture And then you want to capture the good moments and let them have that. Because I, I know for me that personally it's been some of the best memories of my life. And, uh, you know, just want to give it to them. Do the kids thank you? Oh, all the time. All the time. And you get to see the kids kind of in the heat of athletic competition. Yeah. So you get... To see them kind of as they are because, yep. you know, athletics doesn't, I mean, I subscribe to the theory athletics doesn't really build character as much as it reveals it. It does. And you get to see that. Yep. Um, so you, are you going to keep doing that now that your kids are gone or are you just sort of, is it a hit and miss thing? No, I, you know, listen, I don't play golf, you know, and I don't hunt, which eliminates what most, <laughs> the, the major recreational activities and, you know, the, and you're in your neck of the woods. Yeah. That's the two things you do. And I, I, I love it. I mean, you know, this is just something I enjoy doing. And, you know, I. So it's a hobby. It's a hobby. And, you know, it, it I'm not it, it's not causing me any misery. I can tell you that I enjoy it. It is fun. And I love going out there. I, like I said, I grew up in dugouts and on sidelines. And I can't imagine my life not being where I'm not a part of that type of thing. And Brookstone, obviously, has been very welcome. Oh, they, they are just wonderful. Wonderful. 
So, and the coaches have to kind of sign off on that too, because they could say, "Hey, we don't want this." Or, oh, a- absolutely! It's always with their permission. Um, but it, but it's funny. I'll get uh, Kim Sheik, who is the special teams coach yeah. over there at Brookstone. <laughs> you know, I'll send. You know, he'll get the pictures of the punters and the kickers, and he's judging for them. And he'll show me in the coffee shop. He'll say, "Hey, Darren, look, I've circled some things here about what this guy's doing <laughs> wrong and everything." And uh, so, I mean, they are also looking at it from that perspective, but um, it's always with their permission. I always try to stay out of their way um, and just make sure I'm not, you know, a distraction. What do you think about the fact that, I mean, obviously it takes a lot of equipment to do some of, something like yeah. sports photography, but I shot a basketball sequence mm-hmm. at Spencer uh, a couple of months ago that was literally a steal, other in the court, set up, boom, boom. And I look back at it, and I was going, you could broadcast that. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, and this is on an iPhone Pro Max 12. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And I think a lot of the, um, you know, some of these uh, services that put out the uh, recruiting stuff now and that broadcast the high school games, and there's a whole network of stuff, are using iPads to do it. I mean, they're broadcasting or taking their video off of iPads, and it's crystal clear. Um, you know, and, and it's great. You, obviously, there's a distortion of sorts when you yeah. look at it through that and everything. And um, and so, yeah, it's m- more than capable of, of doing great stuff. I mean, the difference being is trying to replace, you know, the type of lens I have that can get right up there to your face, you know, when you're in the middle of a football field. And catching that emotion is never easy it's never but it's great so satisfying oh, it, yeah when you get that picture you go whoa i got yeah. it and, and you it, know it and you know and people cheat now with these because they'll shoot the video and then they'll just do the still grab of right. the video so that's cheating on sports photography in my book well because you know i think you have to know the sport and know where the action is going to take place and have yourself set up to yeah, anticipate it, yeah, it you definitely need to know that yeah. well this hour has flown by um Darren, we're at a point now that where I call it turn the table. You get, I've let the guests so far. We figured out I don't know hip hop. What else have we figured out about me that I used to work in the newspaper? uh, Why I left, but I asked the guests to ask me a question because it's always curious, and particularly somebody like you, who you know is a professional question asker, right? As a uh, as a as an attorney, so it's your shot. So I've, I've got actually two questions for you. Uh, the, the, f- the first one is, um, so you and your wife um, introduced me to a drink. Do you know what drink you and your wife introduced me to? We were in Puerto Rico, yes. right? Okay, As I remember you. Narrowing you, it down, yeah. I have. I, I, I remember the Puerto Rico trip, and we went. Off into Old Town, Puerto Rico. That's right. Okay. Whoa, I've forgotten all about We went about to a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant. We had lunch. Okay. This was a built, This was a home builder's trip mm-hmm. here many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, I don't have a clue. Mojitos. Mojitos. Okay. No. Yeah, that was a pretty good place to get on. That's I pretty good correctly. Okay. Uh, I'll remember that. Okay. So, wow. So here, here's what I want to know. You've been in news for a long time. Print news, now this. What, what was your aha moment for Chuck Williams when you knew this is what you were supposed to do? When it became more than just a job to do, what was your aha moment for you? Um, 
probably two of them. One on the sports side. Uh, I guess it was just covering. I loved high school football. And I guess I had one of those moments at Lou Scales Stadium, and Lou Scales was still coaching. And this was up in Alexandria, Alabama, which is a little hamlet between Anniston and Gadsden. Um, and Lou Scales, you know, back in the era I came out, all these coaches, you know, had Bear Bryant pedigrees. They had, you know, played for Bryant at Alabama. High school coaches all over that state had these Bear Bryant pedigrees. Lou Scales had actually played with Bear Bryant. He was the winningest high school coach in the whole state of Alabama. And I'm up there covering state championship game, and they're playing Elba. And um, and I I was covering Alexander, and, and I realized it was a perfect day. Worked on Friday morning, put out the paper. We had an afternoon paper at the Aniston Star. Then I would go to a little barbecue restaurant called the Gold Post, and it was on 431 downtown on Quintard in, in Aniston. And I would take the afternoon paper. I would read it. Usually had on cowboy boots, jeans, and a ball cap. I'd read the I'd read the paper. I'd eat a barbecue sandwich at the Gold Post, and I'd get in my little truck, and I'd drive up the mountain and cover football. It was like – that. You know, didn't have many worries in the world back then. I mean, you know, at that point, it was like, okay, this is this is what I want to do. And then I transitioned to the new side. And when I started investigating the Parks and Rec scandal, and I started seeing the power that investigative port reporting did, the good you could do with it, it was a whole nother level of it so I've had two pieces of that over my career I mean because I've had my my peer my career has been bifurcated for sure I mean sports you know and even bifurcated again from print to tv and um you know it's just I really 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 like what I do. And I think that's one of the things you and I have in common is you wouldn't be doing all this stuff if you didn't like it. I mean, you know, I like being a journalist. I like being a reporter. And the coolest part about being a reporter right now on the TV side is we have all this incredible young talent at this station. I mean, Gene Kirkconnell and Connor Hackling are news director, assistant news director, are doing this amazing job of bringing in young people, and it's production people like Dylan. It's, and there are all sorts of these production folks. we got one one young lady here, Sarah Gray, and she is one of the ones who's gotten cheated by COVID. She was a student in North Carolina Chapel Hill, and she's done her junior year here and online. And you all know, walk in the newsroom, and she's taking a test. In, you know, in Chapel Hill, she's going back for her senior year next year. So really, but and then the reporters—they're coming from all these places, and there's so much talent and energy these kids bring into this place, and it literally has made me younger. So Excellent. that's a good, well, good answer, Chuck. Thanks, man. I, <laughs> I'll quit answering, asking, and start answering. Well, we have been very fortunate. We have had Darren Hicks with us tonight, and he, uh, you know. I knew you were a Renaissance guy 
but you clearly are. I mean, you're into all sorts of stuff. And it's just, to me, it's just, it's, it's amazing to hear all that. And I really appreciate you sharing. I hope people listen to this. Uh, we're now at the point where I get to tell you about the Chuck Williams show. And it's every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m. here on WRBL.com. You can also catch it. Are we there yet on, um, the podcast version on Spotify and Audible and um, what's the other one? Um, Spotify, Spotify, Apple, and Audible. Yeah. So. Are we there yet? Are we getting there? Getting there. We're getting there. Okay. Um, but we're not there I, yet. We're not there yet. We'll put uh, it that way. We're getting closer to that. That's that's coming soon. And when it does, we want you to get the Chuck Williams show on the go. Also, social media. Pretty active on social media. I'm on Twitter at Chuck Williams. That's right, at Chuck Williams. I've been there since 2008. We need a really good ball player to come take that handle from me. We'll sell it. Uh, Facebook, Chuck Williams at WRBL. And on Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. I want to thank you for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. I want to thank Darren Hicks for being our guest. I want to tell you, everybody out there, be safe. But above all, be kind because you don't know what the people you're dealing with, you're, you're talking to and dealing with. You don't know what they're dealing with right now. Thanks for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. We'll be back next Tuesday in some form or fashion.